Well, I joyfully invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Say joyfully just because that is true. Christ is coming to reign. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 1, and the words I'd like to direct your attention to are found in verses 40 through 45. Please read with me. And the leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Please pray with me. What a, what a beautiful picture, Lord, to, to sing, first of all, of your return. And then to be reminded of your actions while you lived upon the earth after taking on human flesh. The most powerful warrior the world will ever witness bringing the nations to nothing with a a word from your mouth. And yet, what ineffable kindness and compassion are witnessed in this account. And I I would, Lord, I just ask that you would increase our awareness of your character. Yes, your glory, your majesty, your sovereignty, your power, but also your love and your kindness and your compassion. That that would be very clear to each one of us. And Lord, I also would ask that you would give us a clear sense of the warning that's also in this text. That none of us would leave this room unchanged by your word, but that it would be clear and that we would each apply it as appropriate to each one of us. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So a while back, uh, this question was posed to the um, editors of Christianity Today. The questioner asked this, A few months ago, my boyfriend and I had sex. He's 16 and I'm 14. A few weeks later, we broke up. And after that, I found out that he'd been cheating on me. 
Now I feel like he was just using me. I feel really dirty. And I wish I was still a virgin. I pray every night that God will help me and forgive me. But I can't stop feeling dirty. What can I do? I feel dirty. Have you ever said those words? What what help does the Bible offer for those who are unclean? One of the main messages actually of the Bible is to help the unclean learn how they can be clean. And in fact, this is the main point of today's passage. How the unclean can be made clean. It's the story of an unclean leper and his encounter with Jesus. It's the story of a leper. Leprosy, in the Bible, if you remember, you were here for our study through Leviticus a few months ago. Leprosy actually can refer to a a various number of skin diseases. Uh, It's... It's not just referring to Hansen's disease, uh, which is where the, the, the extremities get numbed and you can lose parts of your body. That also could refer to leprosy, but it can refer to eczema or psoriasis and a, a large number of skin diseases. And so it's a pretty broad term. And so we don't know exactly what form of leprosy this man had. But we do know that in the book of Leviticus, how... A person was supposed to respond if they ever did receive leprosy. If they got, if they contact contracted leprosy, they were to go to a priest, and then the priest would pronounce upon them that they were now unclean, and they would have to leave the camp. They'd have to live outside the camp, and if they were healed of this disease, they would first need to be. Uh, examined by a priest. And if the priest, after looking them over, discovers, yes, this person no longer has this disease, they could be um, fit to to, to come back into the camp, but they would still have to go through a number of sacrifices. And all those sacrifices are listed in Leviticus 14. But they needed to be clean and then go through these ritual cleansing in order to be fit again for God's presence in the tabernacle. Lots of Leviticus 14. But you might recall also that after the exile, after Israel had strayed and been disciplined by the Lord severely, the the leaders of Israel wanted to guard Israel from straying again. And these leaders primarily were the scribes. And so what the scribes did in order to guard Israel from straying is they added additional laws and traditions onto those laws that are revealed in the Old Testament. And these laws were designed to try and make sure that nobody violated those laws, any of the laws of the Old Testament. And one such law stated that lepers could not come within 50 steps, 50 paces of another person. Again, not a law found in Leviticus, but it was one of those 
laws of the scribes and the rabbis. Another suggested that if a leper actually just stood beneath a tree for a time, anybody else who also walked beneath that tree would likewise become unclean ritually. And so this leper here that we see approaching Jesus is actually taking a a rather big risk. He's violating law and tradition and custom by coming within 50 paces. And so this demonstrates the desperation he has to be healed. And the fact that he's confident that if he comes to Jesus, Jesus can cleanse him. Jesus can remove this disease that he's been plagued with. Shows great faith in Jesus' power. And so upon seeing Jesus, he runs to him and he falls upon his knees. And he pleads for his healing touch. In fact, his faith is seen in the statement, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And contrast this to a few chapters later in Mark. When the disciples failed to cast out a demon from a boy, the father of the demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus and says to him, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Whereupon Jesus responds, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. So that man says, If you can, and Jesus is like, If I can. It's not an issue of ability. But this man, quite a different response. He says, if you will. And so this leper demonstrates clear faith in Jesus' power to heal. And he's he's not going to stop at anything in order that he might come to Jesus and be cleansed of his defilement. Now as we think about this man and his plight, Pardon me. Only a, only the most hardened person cannot can't sympathize with him. I mean, this man had probably lost everything on account of this disease that he had contracted. I mean, it's not something he did to contract it. It came upon him somehow. We're not told how. But he didn't invite it. And now he was severely inflict, afflicted. He probably had to endure chronic pain on account of it. Because of all the laws that were added in Israel at this time, he faced also physical as well as emotional and social isolation. He was therefore likely impoverished. If he had a family, he was more than likely dead to them. I mean, every form of pain had become his allotment. I mean, really, he had become like another Job. Except that Job's friends could come to him. Man was alone. And the attitude of Jesus toward those afflicted with leprosy is in marked contrast to the rabbis at this time. The sources tell us that of one rabbi who wouldn't eat an egg that was purchased in a street where someone who had leprosy had been. 
Another rabbi boasted that he, he would throw stones at lepers if he saw them, to chase them away. But Jesus touches this man. He reaches out his hand and touches him. And again, like Jesus, we too feel compassion on this man. Because even though we might never have experienced leprosy or known somebody who has leprosy, we all know what it's like to feel spiritually unclean. To f- we know what it's like to feel like a spiritual leper. And you might even assume that if people only knew what was going on inside you, they would run away from you or throw stones at you like a first century rabbi. I mean, have you ever thought any of the following things? If they only knew about my doubts. If the people in this church only knew how messed up my marriage really is. People only knew the ways that I speak to my kids when I'm angry. If my wife knew what I looked at recently. If my friends knew that I struggle with same-sex attraction. They'd, They'd stop speaking to me. If my parents really knew what I did last month, they would kick me out of the house. And you're definitely afraid to be seen for who you really are because you know how spiritually dirty you are. Dirtier than anyone would imagine. And if you can relate to any one of these thoughts you might be wondering if this is a church that you could attend and be accepted. But that's not really the question you should be asking. Because people's opinion and acceptance of you really doesn't matter. That's not the real problem. The question you need to ask yourself is, Will Jesus cleanse me? And Jesus knows your thoughts. And Jesus knows what you've done. Will Jesus cleanse me? Well, how does Jesus respond to the leper? Verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Well, we need to ask, well, why was it that Jesus chose to cleanse this man of leprosy? Well, the text explicitly tells us he cleansed him because he was moved with compassion. That's emphatic. 
moved with compassion. The Greek word actually means bowels. It's saying Jesus was moved in the depth of his being as he saw this man. In the, in the pit of his soul, Jesus was moved. And so Jesus doesn't just heal him because it's his job. He doesn't heal him because it's something he's paid to do. He doesn't heal him to make a point to the scribes and the Pharisees that he's a compassionate man. He doesn't heal him because he wants to build up a name for himself as being a powerful guy. Why does he heal him? He was moved with compassion. When the prophet Isaiah proclaimed that a Christ would come and save Israel, he described the coming Christ with these profound words. In Isaiah 42.3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What's a bruised reed? The metaphor. What's it a metaphor of? Well, it's the opposite of a mighty oak. It's a weak reed that's not just weak, it's already bruised. It's figurative of a weak and frail and hurting person. And likewise, a faintly burning wick refers to a small flickering light. Some of you may have your Advent candles out, or candles anywhere, and you know what it's like when when the wax is almost burnt, and you just have a small glimmer of light, and it's about to be sucked in by the wet wax and be smothered. The very edge of being snuffed out. And it's a metaphor depicting a person who feels very little spiritual light. And they're hanging on to just a glimmer of hope. So the Christ, Isaiah proclaims, would not just be the mightiest warrior that the world has ever seen. He would be a man full of tenderest compassion. A perfect reflection of the Father. Just Just as a mother is most tender towards her frailest child, Likewise, God has the most tender compassion towards those who are weakest. He's most mercifully inclined towards the weakest. And notice that Jesus is moved to heal this man because of his desperate situation. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He said, I am willing. He cleansed. And it was gone. It was eliminated. It was eradicated. It was completely removed. Moved with compassion, Jesus completely cleanses the man of his uncleanness. 
But what's really most remarkable about this story is that Christ's healing of the man is is a stirring display of, of immense compassion. But it's really only a glimpse. It's really only a glimmer of the compassion that he has. It's, it's like a small beam of light that shines through a window shade that's closed. You just get a small glimmer that, that comes through the cracks of the window shade. And it brings light into the room, but you know that on the other side of that wall, there is much more light where that came from. All you're seeing is a little glimmer. Why do I say that? Why do I say that this is just a small glimmer of Christ's compassion? Well, consider that, that all of us, again, can, we can relate of, to what it's like to have pity upon a suffering person. We know what it's like to, to feel compassion. But we're also all sinners. But Jesus was holy, completely without sin. We have no categories for what it means to really be holy. Jesus was holy and once dwelt in unapproachable light in heaven. And in his compassion, he took on flesh, became man, and chose to die in the place of sinners, his enemies. It was Jesus that Isaiah saw on the, on the throne, high and lifted up, and whom the angels, when they were in his presence, cried, Holy, holy, holy. And he, he was so glorious, they had to hide their eyes from his glory. And this same Jesus left his throne in heaven to die in the place of wretches. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. Consider also Romans 5 8. But God shows his own love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's compassion. As the hymn writer said, amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Jesus shows immense compassion in healing the leper, but even more compassion in dying in place of wicked sinners. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to heal man from all the effects of sin, and from the, especially the slavery to sin.
And of course, this leper is ignorant of this greater purpose. And the reason he was ignorant of this greater purpose is because he was actually ignorant of his greater need. He was well aware of his physical problem. Everybody was aware of it. But he was ignorant of what his real need really was. He had faith in Jesus' power to heal. But again, this is very different than his faith in Jesus' power to save. And though this man, again, was healed outwardly, he remained spiritually dead. And so in the face of this amazing display of compassion, this amazing display of power, there's a wake of grief. In fact, this encounter with the leper is really not much different from Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. The man encounters Jesus, but he walks away from Jesus spiritually unchanged. And this is made very clear in what happens next. Jesus sternly warns him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, note where where it says Jesus sternly warned him. That's a very strong word. In fact, the word itself actually describes the snort that that a horse makes. It's a strong, powerful word. And it conveys that Jesus is being as deathly serious in how he speaks to this man as he, could, as he ever could be. I mean, it's as if he's saying, hey, listen, you, listen, listen to me. Listen to what I have to tell you. You've been healed, but li- listen. His warning is very clear. Say nothing to anyone. No words, no person. The man was to be silent about what had taken place until he had gone to the priest and gone through the sacrificial rites that were required. And Jesus points the man back to Moses, and that's very Purposeful. He's pointing the man back to Leviticus because he wants the man to see something. And in fact, there is more compassion seen in Jesus directing him back to the law than actually is seen in his healing of the man. Jesus was directing him back to the word, not just because he revered the law. Of course, Jesus does. He obeyed the law perfectly. But he wants the man to see something. He wants the man to realize what the fullness of the law taught. that, That every man on the face of this earth doesn't just need outward cleansing, outward fixing. They need their hearts changed. A greater cleansing that was revealed in the law. Remember what Jesus said in John 5.46. He tells the experts of the law, If you believed Moses, you would also believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' point is, 
You're not going to listen to me unless you recognize what Moses was trying to teach you. You don't just need salvation from Egypt. You need salvation from your own wicked heart, your self-centeredness, your idolatry. The former, this, this former leper needed the cleansing prophesied by Ezekiel. You need to see this in the text. Flip to Ezekiel chapter 36 and this remarkable promise. Flip to Ezekiel chapter 36. Take just a minute. You'll probably beat me. Look at verse 25. This is what the Messiah would do when he came. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And as you look at that, recall what John the Baptist proclaimed in Mark Chapter 1, verse 8. When Mark, sorry, when John the Baptist, who begins our section of Mark, begins the chapter of Mark, begins the book of Mark, he, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we go from that promise immediately to Jesus. What are we supposed to expect? This is the man who's going to give us the cleansing that was prophesied in Ezekiel 36. Thus all the description of uncleanness in the demon, the unclean spirit, in the demon-possessed boy, the, the emphasis on baptism and the need to be cleansed. Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Through his death and resurrection, God will pour out his spirit, accomplishing the change of heart that everyone needs. That's why Jesus came. And that's why he focused on teaching so that people would, they would recognize their need was internal. They needed the spirit to change them. And notice how Paul describes the change that takes place in a man's heart when they're saved. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart. We become obedient to the heart. When a person receives the Holy Spirit, it's not just external obedience. It's from the heart. They want to obey. And clearly this was not what was experienced by this man. Because... Instead of obeying what Christ says very clearly, the man does just the opposite. He went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around. I mean, it's very, that's the emphasis is though Jesus sternly warned him, 
as, as clear as Jesus could possibly be, very clear command with a very stern voice. It says, but he went out and spread the news. The point is, he's not obeying Jesus. He wants the cleansing because he knows he has an external need. But he doesn't want Jesus' words. Why? Because he needs his heart changed. That's what Jesus wants him to see. That's why Jesus points him back to the law, back to his word. So the man would see what his real need is. But he doesn't listen to Jesus. His disobedience demonstrates his real condition. In fact, he is as unclean in the heart as the man that we saw earlier was possessed by an unclean spirit. See, although he was outwardly clean, inwardly he remained a little devil. The man had undergone a very real, a very remarkable experience. His life was now cleaned up. In fact, he became a preacher. He could point to the testimony. I met Jesus. Look what he did for me. Look at me. I'm clean. And he became a preacher. But he was spiritually dead as a demon. And there are many people who've had similar religious experiences. They've been broken down by life. They become very aware of their sin. And they're, they're scared out of their sin. And, and they, in fact, do turn things around. They go to church. They, they, they try to obey. And to all observers, it would appear that they were genuine believers. But in the reality, that changes. It's just external. They're not obeying from the heart. In the movie Luther, about Martin Luther, came out 10, 20 years ago. There's this powerful scene where a young mother runs to him in the street, eager to tell him of what had recently happened to her. And she runs up to Luther and she hands him a scroll of paper. And he happily takes it from her. But as he unfurls it and reads it, a frown descends upon his face. And he realizes it's an indulgence, which was a fraudulent piece of paper that promised forgiveness for sins but it really accomplished nothing. It was just meant to generate money for the religious leaders. And a lump in, forms in his throat and he slowly hands the scroll back to her and he says, it's just paper, Hannah. It means nothing. She'd been duped. She had thought she had received forgiveness for her daughter with this paper, but it was a fake. And Jesus wants this man to not be duped. He doesn't want this man to think that just because the leprosy is gone, that the real problem is solved. And Jesus doesn't want anybody to be duped into thinking that they've, they've gone through a conversion. That they've been born again when they haven't. And this is why Jesus sternly warns in Matthew 7.22. On that day, 
many. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Go back to that word. Many. It doesn't say a few people will be surprised. It doesn't say a handful. Many. Many. All their good works, all that they've done, they will discover meant nothing. All of it was just a house of cards and it will burn before their very eyes and they will lie naked and exposed before the judgment of their Creator. They were Christ followers who didn't have Christ. And it says there will be many in this state. Those are one of the most troubling words in all of Scripture. The Bible calls this state hypocrisy. And you've undoubtedly heard people say, well, the church is just full of hypocrites. And what this means is the church is full of people who think they've been saved but actually haven't been saved. They've never had their hearts changed. They've never actually been born again. I mean, this is why George Whitfield, when he would go and preach, this is the man who started the Great Awakening in England and America. And as he would go from town to town and proclaim the gospel, his common theme, as he preached to religious people, he'd say, you must be born again. All of the great awakenings, in fact, all the revivals that have happened throughout history have begun in the church as people who thought they were saved finally woke up to the reality. I don't want to obey from the heart. I'm spiritually dead. I've been going to church my whole life. And the reason it's been so hard and I've been so joyless and I've been so faithless is because I've never had the Holy Spirit. And they're stirred out of their deadness to cry out to God and be saved. People are snatched out of that many category. They're no longer the many that Jesus will speak to on that day. They're the few. And like this former leper, a person can appear to be changed. They can come under strong conviction of the Word of God. They can be zealously involved in church activities, give lots of money to charities, love talking about religion in the Bible, and through such things convince themselves and convince everybody else around them that they're genuine believers. But they remain whitewashed tombs. Bleached on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. 
Michael Reeves in his book, Theologians You Should Know, paraphrases Jonathan Edwards' work, Religious Affections. And actually, Religious Affections was written by Jonathan Edwards to Christians who he was worried would be in that many category. That's why the book was written. That people could know what it really meant to be saved, that none would be deceived. And think that just because they've had an experience, that they've been born again. And so, this is, this is his paraphrase. One way hypocrites can be unmasked is by the fact that since their interest is essentially in themselves, they keep their eyes fixed not on the beauty of Christ, but the beauty of their experiences. Hypocrites in their high affections talk more of the discovery than they do of the thing discovered. The worry is that because of the self-love involved, such false affections tend actually to harden the heart in direct contrast to the true work of the Spirit, which makes believers always hungry to know and love God more and to hate sin more and so on. He goes on, Hypocrites, because they have no true love for God, also misunderstand humility, thinking that it too is all about themselves. Instead of happily abandoning themselves for God, hypocrites merely abandon certain things, wealth, pleasure, etc. And they do so only to fuel their own self-righteousness. These are Edward's words, selling one lust to feed another. A beastly lust to pamper a devilish one. And their lack of love for God becomes evident in their lives. Claiming to love God, but having no love for men. Or loving people in the church on Sunday, but mistreating their wives on Monday. Can you relate to this description? When I was in high school, I distinctly remember having a girl, uh, sorry, having a crush on a girl. Her name was Kelly McDuffie. And I, my, I heard her tell my friend that she had no interest in spending time with me because I was a hypocrite. Which deeply offended me. Because... I was actually the godliest person I knew. So I thought. But in fact, she was right. I was a hypocrite. I was devoted to church attendance. I prayed and I fasted regularly. But I was largely ignorant of what the Bible taught. And therefore, on the weekends, I would drink heavily. I would seek to seduce girls. And... I was more or less a completely self-absorbed person. And her accusation of me continued to rattle around in my brain the whole rest of the year. How could she call me a hypocrite? How could she call me a hypocrite? I'm a godly man. Until later that summer, I decided, okay, I'll read the Bible. And I started reading through the Bible, and I came to the book of Galatians. Still moves me to this day. My eyes fell upon Galatians chapter 5. And the man who 
described as walking according to the flesh. And it says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I'm going through this list and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. Man, this describing me. And then my eyes fell on the very next sentence. And it broke me. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it hit me like a freight train. I was the godliest person I knew. But I was a hypocrite. It changed my life forever. I just, I just didn't know I was a hypocrite. And so what hope is there for the hypocrite? Remember that Jesus wants to save you. And this is why Jesus pointed the leper back to the Bible. He wanted him to realize his real need. Remember his great compassion. Remember his compassion. Remember his words in John 6.37 when he says... The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Hear that again. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And at the same time, we also need to recognize that there are many degrees of hypocrisy. There are many people, Matthew 7, who think they're saved and actually aren't. They've never been born again. But there's also very, very mature believers who get caught up in sin and in a sense act hypocritically. At times the greatest of Christians feel like hypocrites. So what word is there for them? They're really saved, but they do awful things. And they hate it. What does God say to those who are mature Christians? Or young Christians, and yet struggling with forms of hypocrisy? This is what's so remarkable. The maturest Christian... And the unbeliever and the the hypocrite, who is an unbeliever, they all need to respond the same way. There's no difference. They just need to acknowledge their hypocrisy. They need to confess their sin and then trust in the power of Jesus to cleanse them. Not trust in their own efforts. Not going to pray. Well, they should pray. They should pray because God uses prayer. It's a means They should read the word. That's a means. But they're not trusting in their efforts. They're trusting in the power of Christ to change them. So they they, they respond the same way a fake Christian responds. They 
confess their inconsistencies, and then confess their need for change. And then they plead with Christ to change me. So again, acknowledge the sin. And then trust in the power of the Savior to continue to change you. And also believe this promise. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And notice that promise is attached to His character. He is faithful. You confess and acknowledge your sin. He is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His blood can make the foulest clean. Let's pray. Lord, we all need this reminder that we cannot cleanse ourselves from our uncleanness. And Lord, I pray that if wherever anybody is at in their position before you, Lord, if there is a hypocrite who thinks they're saved and yet isn't, that they would clearly see it so that they would cry out to you to be born again. And Lord, for those who are just caught up in various sins and struggles, they have the Holy Spirit, but they've they've been hardened through sin over time and they're despairing and they're discouraged. Lord, show them also the power of the promise that you still cleanse and you will cleanse from all unrighteousness. And Lord, that we would all be a people who look away from ourselves and look completely to you and trust fully in your grace to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we praise you because only you can cleanse us. You break the power of canceled sin. You set the prisoner free. Your blood can make the foulest clean. Your blood availed for me. Thank you, Christ.